Well, hello, Elevation. Here we are once again on a Sunday morning gathering across our city and beyond. Glad to be with you. Uh, I came across the kind of story that, I don't know, for some reason, I like stories like this. It came from a bunch of Russian reindeer herders. And they were way up north, way up north. And they made this incredible discovery, actually the first of its kind discovery. They came across an immaculately preserved carcass of an ice age cave bear. Now the initial guesses were that this uh, bear was between 22 and 39,000 years old. And it's preserved just perfectly. You can still see the fur on it. All of its internal organs are intact. Its nose is like just the way it was uh, when it would have passed away in the frost and the in the snow. Um, so anyways, this incredible thing. And I thought it was pretty amazing to be able to catch a glimpse of something that really comes from a world that is so different than our own. This morning's reading, it takes us back to a practice of the earliest follower of Jesus that have actually survived for the last 2,000 years. Now, 2,000 years isn't 22,000 years, but it's still a long time for us to be having the same practices of faith. Now, the question that I want us to explore this morning is just how well preserved is the practice that Paul called the Lord's Supper and that we often refer to as communion. Now, if you are going to tell someone some bad news, there is like a classic way to do it. Uh, it. This happens to you at some point in your life, and then you turn around and you use the same method once you've had it experience yourself. It's called the sandwich method. So basically, whether you're in a conversation with someone or writing a letter or an email to someone, if you've got to say something challenging, you want to start off by saying something encouraging. And then you want to make sure that when you sign off at the end, you say something else encouraging. In the middle is the tough stuff. Now, I think the kind of sandwich analogy might be a little backwards, because usually it's the really good stuff that's in the, between the two pieces of bread. But in the letter to the, Paul's let, first letter to the Corinthians, he uses this sandwich method. Because right at the beginning, in that first chapter, he says, grace and peace to you. He starts it off on this really high note. And then by the end of the letter, he signs off, my love to all of you. But what happens in the middle is a whole lot of challenge. He challenges them for their quarreling and their jealousy. He challenges them for behaving in a worldly manner for their arrogance, for sexual immorality, which even included incest, for taking each other to court, for making one another stumble, chapter after chapter, challenging them on the way that they were living and how it wasn't lining up with the way of Jesus. And then we come around to chapter 11, and he says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Now, Paul goes on to paint an ugly picture of divisiveness in the church, which he finds almost unbelievable, given the fact that love and unity are supposed to be the church's go-to values. And yet this community has somehow allowed itself to devolve to these dissensions and divisiveness. Now, of course, anyone who is part of a family or a workplace environment or even a close group of friends knows that it's not always easy to get along. There are gonna be times where their divisions rise their head. Sometimes the best way, in fact, to get along with people is to put some distance between you. Absence, as the saying goes, makes the heart grow fonder. But we haven't been able to put a lot of distance between ourselves lately, have we? So we found ourselves often in situations where we're really close to one another. And the problem with proximity is that it becomes easy to take one another for granted. And then we can default to taking care of our own needs first instead of the needs of the community around us. Paul writes, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. 
As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Now, we'll come back later to what Paul thought the Lord's Supper was supposed to be, but for starters, let's take a look at what he says it's not supposed to be. Now, this was originally celebrated as part of a Sunday evening meal. So it wasn't uh, a little piece of wafer or bread and a, a little tiny cup of juice uh, or wine like we would have today. It was part of a Sunday meal in the evening that the, the early Christians would gather in someone's home and they would share this meal and then they would also observe um, these elements of remembrance. Uh, it was intended to strengthen the Corinthian believers' sense of community, of being part of one body and of a bigger story. The best way for us to think about it might be like a potluck. Do you remember when we used to have those? First of all, when we were allowed to have a bunch of us in the same room at the same time. Um, and then when we would make food in our separate homes and then we'd bring it together and then someone would bring it out from the kitchen and then we'd all use the same ladle and we'd scoop those delicious meatballs or that macaroni or that salad onto our plate and, and then someone else would take the same ladle and use the same thing. It's, it's the kind of thing that we'll probably won't do for years to come. Um, but that's what this would have been like. Everyone would have kind of brought something to contribute to this meal. But something had changed. That wasn't what was happening. Instead of creating unity, this meal was, perpe was perpetuating social hierarchies because the people who had better food were bringing it for themselves. And then the people who were really relying on others to share, they didn't get enough food to eat at all. And Paul heard about this through the grapevine, and he said, this is not what this is supposed to be at all. Jesus came to break down these social hierarchies, to break down the barrier between rich and poor, but here it's happening right in the middle of your celebration of the Lord's Supper. There's this verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 that I remember being taught about in my early church days, and uh, it goes like this. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, what I would have been told initially was this idea that before you take communion, before you eat the bread and drink the wine, you better make sure that there's no sin in your life, that you have confessed everything. Because if you eat or drink those elements and you haven't confessed everything, then judgment is going to come on you. Uh, now, I don't think that there's anything wrong with encouraging confession. I think that should be a part of, of our worship together. But when you think about what Paul was saying in the context of this whole chapter, he's addressing the way that they behaved when they gathered together for this meal. The point is made really clear in verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, Paul writes, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And the warning then is, if you're not going to all eat together, then you're drinking or eating judgment on yourself. Now, in the middle of his rant uh, to the Corinthians about their divisiveness, Paul turns his attention and his words and to the actions of Jesus on the night that he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. The Passover was a long-standing Jewish tradition where they would remember the time that God passed over the Jewish families, the Hebrew families, in Egypt while he was about to lead them out of slavery. And so basically what would happen was that the, the Jewish families, that they would take the blood of a lamb and they would spread it on the, the doorpost of their home, and that would mark them uh, that God would know that these are the homes that he was to pass over. So it was sharing this ceremony, this remembrance of Passover, that Jesus said these words. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so breaking apart a loaf of bread illustrates that Jesus' body was broken for us. 
there was one time I was officiating a wedding ceremony many years ago, and somehow I lost the bread between my car and the church building. I don't know, I must have dropped it in the parking lot, maybe a bird swept down, snatched it up, I'm not sure. But I, all I knew is that I was about to officiate the ceremony and I had the juice, but I didn't have any bread. So I went scrambling through the kitchen of the church and I found the only thing I could find that resembled communion bread were goldfish crackers. And so we ended up using goldfish crackers that day. So not exactly the loaf that you break apart. The symbolism was maybe not quite there. In the same way, Paul writes, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I had the juice taken care of at that particular wedding, but actually at my own wedding, something funky happened with the juice. Uh, when Melissa and I went to the communion table to, to share in the elements together, uh, we looked down in the communion cup, it was this silver kind of chalice, and we noticed that the, the Welch's grape juice that I had put in there a couple hours early was not there anymore, and instead there was a, a green, like fluorescent, antifreeze kind of colored liquid that was in the cup, and we're sitting there, and, and there's music playing in the background, and no one really knows what's going on, but we're talking with the pastor, and we're like, we can't drink this, someone's pulled some kind of a prank on us, and he's like, no, and, and I think he even might have suggested that it was maybe the sun interacting with the silver that's changed the color of the juice, so we drank it, and I guess took the risk, but again, not quite the symbolism that Jesus was going for at the Passover supper. For generations, the blood of animals had played a central role in Jewish worship and as a sacrifice that made forgiveness possible. Again, think back to the Passover, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. So there's this, this symbolism that was very much a part of Jewish life. In fact, when I was young, growing up in the Lutheran church, there was part of the liturgy that we would sing every time uh, the communion service was celebrated that goes like this. Worthy is Christ, the lamb who was slain, whose blood set us free, to be people of God. Now that came back to me, and when you hear kind of words read over and over and sung over and over in your childhood, they tend to stick with you. But it came back to me as I was thinking about the profound message that that little line has, that Jesus' blood set us free to be people of God. There's this great quote I want to share from Stanley Grenz. The long-term health and viability of the church demands that its leaders and people return again and again to the forming and informing vision of what the community of Christ is called, mandated, and empowered to be by the Lord of the church. Above all, I would add, we are called to be a people who embody in our life together and in our relationships to all humans and even to all creation, the great narrative of the biblical God, the one who has come to us in Christ and now empowers us through the Holy Spirit, poured out in our hearts and in our fellowship. It's such a great reminder of who we are called to be as a church, a people who embody the story of Jesus, God with us in our life together as a community. But what Gren says in the first part of that quote is that the thing that prepares us to embody this story is returning again and again to our forming vision. This is what's called a liturgy. Jamie Smith says the liturgy is a hearts and minds strategy, a pedagogy that trains us as disciples precisely by putting our bodies through a regimen of repeated practices that get hold of our heart and aim our love toward the kingdom of God. And I don't think that at any point of, of our liturgy, formal or informal, is this more clear than when we celebrate communion. Sharing these elements together, bread, and juice. It helps to aim our love, to remind us of who we are and what we're doing in this world together. 
reflecting on Christ's death and resurrection using the same elements and the same words that he used with his closest disciples all those years ago, it helps us to recenter ourselves on the story of Jesus, which, as our call to worship reminds us each week, is why we're here. Now, this is why Paul was so upset with the Corinthians. The Lord's Supper was supposed to be this this core unity of love that would form them and shape these people. But instead, it had turned into something different. It's like uh, in the 1970s, Dean Martin did this thing where he would do celebrity roasts, and he would bring famous people onto this TV show, and he would roast them, basically kind of mock them, make fun of them, um, all in, in jest and in good fun, but you'd push it like as far as you could possibly go. In recent years, Comedy Central has picked this up, and you might have seen clips of this online, where one celebrity will get up, and they will spend the whole night basically tearing down one of their peers. It's, it's funny, it's humorous, supposedly. But imagine that you were expecting someone to have a birthday party for you, and you're, you're expecting a house that has balloons and ribbons, and you're expecting people to bring gifts, and for you to have a birthday cake, and for you to have like cards with really nice things written about you. Now, imagine instead of you having a birthday party, you showed up and it was a roast, and everyone there was like basically mocking you and making fun of you and poking at all your little foibles. Uh, that would be like, what, this is not very, what this is supposed to be. This is not very, feel very celebratory. What we do in communion is not supposed to be just a free-for-all, just whatever. There's something intentional about what happens here. 1 Corinthians 11:26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, the Lord's Supper was not intended to become a religious exercise that would be detached from the way that we live with the people around us. It was supposed to be an everyday way using common elements for us to remember Christ and specifically, for us to remember him together. Now, at a time when sharing meals is discouraged, how else can we remember Jesus together? In the chapter previous, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, we read, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? This passage stuck out to me. It's not the, the one we usually read around communion, but I like this word participate. It's active, something more than just eating and drinking together. And so the question is, what does it mean to participate in the body of Christ? What does it mean to participate in the blood of Christ? Now, there are all kinds of different ways that we can participate in the world around us. Uh, I can throw uh, a Bills jersey on and cheer for the Bills and their great 1-0 start to the season. Uh, the reality is I don't even have to know how to play football to do this. I don't even have to know anything about football. I can just put that jersey on and somehow it's like I'm participating in what's going on. But it's really distant. Now, we can up the ante, and we can participate in a closer way. I think about people who would be marching in solidarity with others. Now, so you're not quite living that person's life, but you want to stand up for them, and you're willing to, to have a little bit of discomfort or, or go a little out of your zone in order to stand up for them. So that's, that's a, a greater participation in someone's life. But, but is there another step? What does it mean for us to participate in the body and blood of Christ? The closer we get to allowing our blood to be spilled and our bodies to be broken, the closer we come to truly remembering Jesus. I want to say that again. The closer we get to allowing our blood to be spilled and our bodies to be broken, the closer we come to truly remembering Jesus. 
Now, there are many ways that we can embody the story of Jesus in our life together, that we can carry the life of Jesus with us as we walk through the world. And these ways are particularly important at a time when the usual ways of us being together and doing life together aren't available. One of the things that we talk about every single Sunday on these online services is our neighbors groups, because it's an incredible way for us to embody Christ for one another, to be present with one another, even if it's over a Zoom call or a Google Hangout, to listen to one another. That's using our body, to encourage one another, using our words, using our lips um, to lift one another up. And sometimes to find out the needs of people in that neighbor's group and offer practical assistance, maybe in food or, or a lift somewhere or practical help around the house. We're able to embody our faith with one another through our neighbor's groups. And this is as good a time as any to remind you that we'd love people from our neighbor's groups to take photos in your specific community of, of landmarks, maybe a famous space in your community or, or your public school or, or something else that matters to you, uh, and send it in to Melissa Burke because we're going to be putting together a bit of a, show, a slideshow next week uh, that will help us understand the incredible opportunities we have in the neighbors, or neighborhoods around us. Um, but what else is going on in the life of their church? Uh, I'm excited about the youth startup. I'm not in youth, of course, um, so I don't get to participate in it, but I've been seeing little video clips and photos of our junior uh, youth gathering together, and it's this incredible reminder that, yes, you can, you're there to have fun, and also you're there to learn, but you as well have this opportunity to encourage one another and to embody your faith for one another, to be present to people. I think about our prayer calls that we gather online every Wednesday night at 7.30. It's an opportunity for us to come and lift the needs of our community before God in prayer with one another. It's a really encouraging time. And you're going to be hearing some more info soon about a prayer walk that we're coordinating that will leave from 22 Willow, allow us to, to embody again the, the story of Jesus as we walk through this neighborhood and pray. I think about our kids, and we had a great call uh, recently in the evening on a Zoom chat with a, a number of our key kids' leaders, and they were being introduced to Melody, and we did some brainstorming, and everyone was kind of talking about how we need to be present to our kids. What physical, tangible things can we do to connect with our kids? I think about our giving. Again, every Sunday morning, we give thanks to everyone who con continues to contribute financially to the work of our community and beyond. And that investment is a way of embodying. It's giving something of yourself up for the sake of others. The Ride for Refuge is a specific way of giving that we've been talking about, literally embodying your commitment in support of the displaced, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. Getting on a bike or walking or baking or whatever it is that you're going to do, it's a way for you to get actively involved in the life of our community as we do this together, but also in the life of the broader community that we're here to support. And I think regardless of what is happening officially in the life of our Elevation community, you can just take the initiative and embody the life of Jesus in the lives of the people around you, for one another. Reach out to people, go for a walk, have a porch visit, send a note, ask someone how they're doing, embody your faith, bleed a little, allow yourself to be broken and used up a little for the sake of one another. That is what is at the core of this image of communion. Now, before I wrap up, uh, I saw something in the news that came. This is like our local news here. This is not like northern Russia. This is local news. A male has been arrested after transit officials saw a person riding on the outside of a GO train on the Kitchener line Monday evening. Now, uh, really don't know anything more about the story. Maybe this guy had a good reason for doing this. I don't know. Uh, but it seems like a bit of a foolish thing to do. Uh, now, you can try to ride the train that way. You can. 
but in the words of a ghost spokesperson in the article, incredibly dumb, incredibly illegal, definitely dangerous. So maybe not the best way to ride a train. You can try to follow Jesus on your own, you can, but there are so many good reasons, even in the midst of a pandemic that keeps us apart, to buy a ticket and ride on the inside of the train, to be part of this community of faith, to embody your faith for the people around you. When the Corinthians shared in the Lord's Supper, it was a practice that strengthened their sense of community. It strengthened their love for one another. And so the question that I wanna leave us with, that I really wanna pose this week, is what can I do to strengthen our sense of community this week? Even as we're separated, even as we're not gathering in person for worship yet, what can each one of us do this week to strengthen our sense of love and unity as the Elevation community? At this time, I am gonna invite you to take the communion elements that you have in front of you and prepare to share in them together as we wrap up our time together.